Did you ever think about what happens when a patient is told that they have a terminal illness? How do doctors communicate difficult news? How do they listen and become a patient's partner on the road ahead? And for patients receiving devastating news, how do they process it? Language, it turns out, can have a critical outcome in healthcare. This is true not just in end-of-life discussions, but across an entire spectrum of healthcare issues. In fact, using narrative can be very powerful in the medical realm, so powerful that it can change the way we care for those most in need. This is the world of narrative medicine. Hello, I'm Dr. Jason Wingard. Welcome to the Learn for Life podcast. The Learn for Life podcast, exploring the people, the skills, and the global forces driving change in our professional lives with host Dr. Jason Wingard, Dean of the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, part of the thought leadership series Talks at Columbia. The primary focus on attending to patients has to do with bringing all of your capacities as a human being to the interaction. If I'm delivering bad news to someone as a clinician, one of the things that I think is required of me is to reflect on how I would want to hear bad news, right? So it's a process of self-reflection and building capacities for attending to the patient's needs. Narrative medicine. It is a world of healthcare professionals, writers, and scholars who see that not just science, but also stories can transform healthcare. With me today is Dr. Craig Irvine, academic director and lecturer in the Narrative Medicine Program at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. Welcome, Craig. Thank you, Dean Wingard. So there's an expression I've heard used that I'm sure you're familiar with. Humans are meaning-making machines, which is to say that we as humans attach meaning and create stories to make sense of the world. I've read research on brain science that backs up this idea. Scientists are discovering that chemicals like cortisol, dopamine, and oxytocin are actually released in the brain when they're told a story. Hearing one can literally alter neurochemical processes that shape our behavior. It's as if an important part of us is biologically designed to tell stories. Craig, can you expand on this idea and explain how it connects to the discipline of narrative medicine? I'm glad to learn <laughs> that neurologists have confirmed what several thousand years of human history has already taught us that stories are the primordial means, the fundamental means through which we make sense of and convey the meaning of our lives. When somebody asks you who you are, what do you do? You don't give them an equation, a PowerPoint demonstration. You tell them a story, right? right? Our identities, our very identities are founded in, are grounded in, are composed in stories. So how that relates to healthcare? Well, if I'm responding to human suffering. I'm not responding to human suffering in the abstract. I'm treating patients, persons with illnesses, with disabilities. The context in which they're experiencing their illness, their disability, is a storied context. If I'm going to be able to respond meaningfully and helpfully to that patient, to offer them the aid, the help, the medicine, it requires my entering their story, in a sense, to understand how stories work, uh, not just in that patient's lives, but generally, so that I can ask the right questions, right, and respond in a way that's going to be most helpful, most meaningful. So, Craig, one of the courses in your program includes watching films. How does film help with the discipline of narrative medicine and teaching students? 
really we draw on all of the arts, um, but there's something very special that happens when we watch films, right? I think all of us have probably had that experience where we might not have had any expression of strong feeling for months, for weeks. We go watch a film, and what happens? We're drenched in tears, we're laughing, um, we're scared. Films activate us in a really visceral way and they are also wonderful tools for entering the uh, perspectives of other persons. So, so do you watch films generally to understand culture and people and emotions, or do you specifically watch films about the interactions in hospital and other patient settings? More generally. You know, one of the things that we find happens if we focus too much on those films that are specifically set in medical settings is that our learners focus on the medicine, right, on the right. the details of, oh, did that doctor get it right? And uh, the specifics of that. That's distracting. It's right. distracting. What we really want them to look at is the form in which it unfolds and the metaphors that are employed, the way time is constructed in the film. How does it engage us in that way? What is the complexity with which that story is told? Learning that gives uh, students a kind of narrative competence, right, for being able to interpret uh, other stories and enter perspectives, other perspectives. Is there a particular film in which students responded significantly either through emotions or through storytelling or in other ways that was really helpful to your curriculum? Yes, yeah. We One of the films that we go back to frequently. We assigned it, in fact, as part of um, a workshop that we do with all of our incoming students every year is um, a Japanese film called Departures. And it follows the life of a young man who has um, lost his job as a, he was a, a professional cellist. And he answers a want ad, and it turns out that the want ad is for employment with someone who um, helps to prepare bodies for burial. There's a scene in which we watch with great detail his mentor dress the body. And what students will often note is how much it's like the kind of touch that a doctor does when he's examining oh, you, yeah. placing the stethoscope on your body, right, listening to your heart. And I think, again, we can all remember times when that was done in a way in which the physician conveyed her presence to you, right? Was really there in it. And other times when it was rote, there wasn't really a human being in the room with you. It makes all the difference, right? How it's performed, how we bring ourselves into presence of another human being. So tell me about your story. How did you end up specializing in the discipline and field of narrative medicine? I completed a PhD in philosophy. Um, my doctoral dissertation work was on Hegel, but I also included um, a great deal of work from narrative theorists. So I was already interested in narrative theory when I did my doctorate. I ended up at Columbia being hired by the Center for Family Medicine originally, doing work for them, writing grants, some teaching, some administrative work, and I met Dr. Rita Sharon, who is the uh, founder. The guru. The guru, <laughs> the founder of the field, the executive director now and chair of the Division of Narrative Medicine. Um, and we began our work together now almost 20 years ago. Um, I was teaching medical students, uh, film courses, 
philosophy of death courses. We eventually started doing workshops, and out of that work, that experience, uh, we developed the pedagogy that we then expanded and deepened for the master's program. So I kind of came into it a bit sideways. But as we all do. The, as we all do, yes. <laughs> so Craig, let's talk about the definition of narrative medicine. I know for many of our listeners, they're still grappling, even in this moment, with what does it actually mean? Does it mean better bedside manner? Does it mean use of storytelling? What exactly is narrative medicine? How would you like them to describe it after this podcast? Well, it's all of those things. And that's one of the uh, problems with giving a capsule definition. But one of the things I like to say, uh, the ways I like to describe it is that since stories are really the way we understand ourselves, make meaning of our lives, express and ground our identity, being able to respond meaningfully to a patient and offer them care means being able to understand their story. So the narrative in narrative medicine is really about a kind of competence, a kind of ability to understand how stories work and to attend to the stories of our patients. We, we talk about the importance of um, uh, attending to stories as a way to also be moved to action. So it unfolds on a lot of levels, on every interaction with every patient that attention is required, but also more systemically. There are deep inequities in healthcare, and we've been trying to address those inequities in one form or another um, through pedagogy in medical schools, and we haven't really made that big a dent yet, unfortunately. Uh, these inequities have very real consequences in patients' lives. And our engagement with stories as a way to enter other perspectives and to advocate for change is a crucial aspect of our work. So can you provide an example of how shaping and telling a story has resulted in an improved clinical outcome for yeah. a patient? One story that comes to mind came from my work with family medicine residents. And as part of that work, we would read together uh, short stories, poems, and we would talk about how they do their work as stories. And then I would have the residents write to a prompt. One of the prompts I gave them was to write about a time you were moved by a patient's suffering. And one of the residents wrote a story that has stayed with me um, all these years. It was about a patient who was admitted to the hospital uh, when she was um, on her very first rotation as an intern oh, in the hospital, a patient who was dying from um, advanced liver disease, from alcoholism. And unfortunately, when that happens, when somebody like that's admitted on the hospital floor, the team generally thinks, oh, God, no, you know, not the person taking up space who brought this on themselves. And that was this resident's feeling also. But in writing about the patient's death, she wrote about the patient's ex-wife coming to the bedside after the patient had died and showing her a picture of the patient when he was very young. And this woman had been estranged from him for years, but as the resident wrote, she found her love for him that she had lost for so long, sitting there looking at his picture, showing it to her. And the resident, uh, by the time she finished writing the story and, and reading it to her fellow residents and to me, you know, was in tears. Quite emotional, yeah. Quite emotional. 
and said afterwards, I will never see an alcoholic patient in the same way again. Now, she'd already had many lectures on how alcoholism is a disease, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, But to really bring this home and what it means in the life of a patient required her not only to represent it, right, to write the experience, to reflect on what she'd experienced, but to share it with her fellow learners, have them reflect back what they heard, and what stayed with her. I talked to her 10 years later when I was at a conference and I ran into her, and I, uh, she said to me, you remember that story I wrote? I'll never forget that photo. Hmm. Now, would she have remembered that if she hadn't been asked to attend to it in this way? The photo becomes a metaphor, right? When it's written in a story, when it's represented in that way and shared, metaphors collect meaning in a way that other kinds of learning really can't. So I'd like to shift to a question about millennials and technology. Salesforce conducted a survey a couple years ago in 2015 called The State of the Connected Patient. There were a few interesting findings. First, 71% of millennial patients responded that they would like to engage with their provider using a mobile app. You can imagine that. Second, nearly half of millennials said they have no personal relationship with a physician. And finally, 40% believe that their doctor would not recognize them if they crossed paths while walking down the street. So this study is now four years old. If it were fielded today, I imagine the number would be higher. This is no small issue because the number of people we're talking about, the millennials together with the younger Generation Z, currently make up more than 40% of the U.S. population. So what is the role of storytelling in this shift toward more digital interactions and fewer personal connections? Yeah, that's such a great question and really a pressing one. We have to work on ways to make these apps more robust, to be able to offer richer content, richer sources of, of um, ways of conveying stories. Right. Because in a way, they could be the opposite of what you're describing, right? And too often they are. I mean, uh, the electronic medical records really, um, and it's not quite what you're asking about, but they they in many ways do mitigate against writing that fuller story because mostly it's checking boxes and choosing from drop-down menus. We have to face the fact that this is the world we live in. And there are plenty of creative minds who um, are and can be at work doing that. Uh, but I also want to say those apps can never replace human contact, human touch. They can help us connect in new ways, but there's always going to be a need for human touch. And in some ways, the fact that we are moving in this direction makes it all that more important to find ways for us to be able to connect through touch, through presence there is always going to be a place for that in healthcare. So let's tie this conversation to a question about the job market of the future. The World Economic Forum has predicted that by the year 2022, technologies are going to displace tens of millions of workers, and more than half of all workers will need to reskill and upskill. Many of these skills will be tech-focused. But by 2022, the World Economic Forum has also predicted that so-called human skills will be in high demand as well. Skills such as creativity, originality, and emotional intelligence. Skills that you just described that need to be combined with the marketization of apps in, um, in the medical space. Looking to the future of work in the medical field, 
How do you think, Craig, these trends will translate? What kinds of jobs or capabilities will be in high demand related to narrative medicine? As the apps help us more and more to be able to um, take care of those things that don't require human creativity and imagination, the jobs that we're going to be focusing on uh, are those that do require those skills and, and will be increasingly evident because of the fact that um, so much of that electronic world mitigates against human connectedness. So finding ways to build bridges, finding ways to um, address uh, deep inequities in healthcare. Schools already know this. Schools are already de uh, developing health humanities programs as a way to um, uh, respond to the need for building these kinds of connections. Clinical sites are, hospitals are. So our students are being prepared to advance the ways in which we respond to a world in which there are deeper and deeper divides between human beings. The more those divides become apparent, uh, the more that they separate us, the more important it's going to be to build those sorts of programs. Mm. So it's interesting. So again, narrative medicine is a a field of study and a practice where technology can be used to help capture the stories and share those stories yes, and best practices, much. but it will never displace uh, the need for that real human person-to-person -person interaction. Said, yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. So as part of our Talks at Columbia video series, we featured a panel discussion recently with one of our narrative medicine alumni, who's also a physician, Dr. Gayatri Devi, along with a mentor of hers, the iconic author, and activist, Gloria Steinem, and you were there for that. They discussed Dr. Debbie's latest book, The Spectrum of Hope, an optimistic and new approach to Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. In the book, she rewrites the story of Alzheimer's disease by defining it as an individual spectrum disorder. This is a new view of the disease, and Dr. Debbie credits her time at Columbia in helping her to develop this view. Can you expand on Dr. Debbie's work? How could a narrative medicine approach change how a physician thinks about disease. The thing that Dr. Devi recognizes so powerfully is that there is no Alzheimer's disease in the abstract. There is no any disease in the abstract. There are persons suffering from Alzheimer's disease. There are persons suffering from diabetes. Dr. Devi's keen attentiveness to the lived experience of her patients is what allowed her to recognize that there is a spectrum, a broad spectrum of the ways in which patients uh, experience their disease. It was entering their stories, sitting down with them and, and having them tell her what their experience is, not going into those patient encounters already with a fully formed idea. What does that require? Curiosity, narrative curiosity. What is the story here? Not, I already know, right? I already have your story. I've already mastered you in a way, right? Instead, it's asking those questions. It takes a, what we call a narrative curiosity. Another uh, term we use is narrative humility, which I think all of us have... Is that possible, Craig, with physicians? Well, <laughs> I was just about to say, I think we've had a lot of experience, probably all of us, where that hasn't been the case. It's more than possible. So I think Gloria Steinem, as an author... 
uh, was very interested in seeing how learning the personal stories of patients can inform the understanding of an illness that affects many people, not just an individual. I imagine she's not the only non-medical practitioner who is also inspired by narrative medicine. What is the ratio of medical to non-medical students in the narrative medicine program? So not only do we have medical students, pre-medical students, we have clinicians who've been in practice for many years, very experienced clinicians, but we also have writers, artists, academics from other fields. We've had people with PhDs in linguistics who do our work. One thing probably unites all of those individuals, and that is something very deep and meaningful in their life that connects them to wanting to be able to address human suffering and finding the resources for doing that some way they want to activate their work as writers, as artists, as academics toward addressing inequities in healthcare, for social justice in healthcare, for being able to help patients represent their experience, to be able to communicate better with their providers. So I have one final question for you, Craig. You talked about uh, majoring in philosophy and studying philosophy earlier in your career. But I also know you to be a man of culture and have broad <laughs> interests. So what is your favorite literary work of art that actually has nothing to do with health or medicine? That's a hard question because I have so many. <laughs> but if I'm forced to choose, forced to choose one, forced to choose, I would say Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, which had a deep impact on me when I was quite young. Tolstoy's view of the... <laughs> depth, the complexity, and the range of human life is godlike. I'm always in awe of the ways he's able to enter lives of characters who have, um, who are from every strata of society, and convey it with such, uh, so convincingly and movingly. I don't think there's any other book I can think of that is a greater example of the novelistic form. I've read that book, but based on your description, it sounds like I need to read it again. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't have the same experience. Didn't have the same experience, but I will give it a second try. Okay, please. <laughs> well, thank you, Craig, for joining me. You're, you're certainly changing the medical experience for generations to come. I want to make sure that our listeners have, as always, a few of the most poignant takeaways. So I will list them off, and let's see if I got it right. So number one, you talked about how stories are the primary, primordial means through which we make sense and convey the meaning of our lives. Number two, you talk about how narrative medicine enables patients and caregivers to voice their experience, to be heard, to be recognized, and to be valued, improving the delivery of healthcare overall. And number three, you talk about how narrative medicine's time-tested teaching approaches can help participants who seek to convey to their learners a few skills. Empathetic interviewing, reflective practice, narrative ethics, self-awareness, and creating and sustaining healing contact between patients and colleagues. Dr. Craig Irvine, thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Learn for Life podcast part of the Thought Leadership series, Talks at Columbia, hosted by Dean Jason Wingard, the author of Learning to Succeed, Rethinking Corporate Education in a World of Unrelenting Change, and Learning for Life, How Continuous Education Will Keep Us Competitive in the Global Knowledge Economy. We want to hear from you. Tweet your questions using the hashtag Talks at Columbia, and we'll answer them on future episodes. 
For more information about talks at Columbia and the Columbia University School of Professional Studies, visit sps.columbia.edu.